John 9 today, returning back to our study through this fourth gospel. The title of today's message is Mud Pies and New Eyes. But it all started when Marilyn Ford began seeing floaters in her vision. Pretty soon she was unable to make out the teacher's writing on the school chalkboard and then people's faces grew fuzzy. And so at 18 years old, Marilyn was told by her doctors, I'm sorry ma'am, there's nothing more that we can do for you. Your condition is irreversible. The medical diagnosis is called macular degeneration. And what this means, ma'am, is that soon you will be legally blind. And so in a matter of months, Marilyn Ford was sightless. But she did not let that stop her. On to college she went. And she learned how to tap with a cane and how to read Braille. And there were bright moments there. She did fall in love with a young man who was called to preach the gospel. His name was A.C. And so the young preacher married a blind bride. And then God gave him a baby and led them to their first church in Arkansas. Marilyn had prayed for 12 years that God would heal her of blindness. And she said in her book, These Blind Eyes Now See, she said that life at that time was so difficult. Imagine raising your first baby, trying to be a pastor's wife, and doing it all in the dark. She'd never seen the face of her husband. She'd never seen the face of her child or her church family. And yet it seemed the more that she prayed that God's answer was clear. For more than a decade, the answer from heaven seemed to be no. There would be no healing for her. Then in desperation, one night, this tired mother knelt by her bedside with her husband, A.C., and they prayed, Lord, we can't go on like this anymore. Now, I promise you, I'll come back and tell the rest of Miss Ford's story later on in the message. But it makes me wonder, at what point would you have given up on the miracle of sight if you were in that position? And moreover, what would be worse? Losing your eyesight or never having it at all? The man that we're going to meet today in John chapter 9 was of that second category. For we are told that he is the man born blind. He'd never seen the face of his parents. Never enjoyed the sunset. While other men had learned a craft or began a family, he begged. Other men enjoyed hobbies and had hopes and dreams. But this man lived in endless darkness. To describe flowers and mountains and beauty to him would have been like trying to explain algebra to your dog. It just didn't work. In fact, this blind man we read about here has become so common a sight as a beggar on the street corner that he has basically become invisible. He blended in with the atmosphere and the culture and the trappings there on that street where he was that nobody even really noticed him or saw much value in his life until one day when Jesus came by, amen? Now this blind man that we're going to read about, he becomes the recipient of the sixth sign miracle that we study here in John's gospel. And you will remember as we have looked at these, 
Each sign miracle addresses a different need that we face in life. For example, that first miracle in John 2 of turning the water into wine, that shows that Jesus deals with our disappointment. The healing of the nobleman's son that came next in John 4, that shows how Jesus deals with our doubts. In John 5, when he healed that man at the pool of Bethesda, that shows us how Jesus has authority over our disabilities. When he fed the 5,000, we see how Jesus meets our desires. He is the bread of life, we saw in John 6. Also, at the end of John 6, when Jesus comes walking out on the stormy sea of Galilee, we notice that Jesus is sovereign over our dangers. Now we come to this man born blind, and we see that Jesus is the healer of man's darkness. Now, John is going to cleverly use this blind man to teach us an important lesson. And that is that there's two kinds of vision that we can speak about. There's physical vision, and then there is spiritual vision. And we can have physical sight and yet be spiritually blind. If all we see is what we can take in with our natural eyes, and we do not have the eyes of faith, then Jesus would say, we are truly blind. If all you see is what you see, then you do not see all there really is to be seen. And in John 8 and verse 12, if we were to back up and get some context for this miracle, Jesus claimed there in that verse, I am the light of the world, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And so as Jesus is going to restore sight to this blind man, it's not only a validation of that divine claim to be God, but this miracle shows that Jesus not only restores sight to blind eyes, but He also opens up our understanding to the truth. Because if you have sight but do not really see spiritual truth, then the Bible would say you are blind. So Jesus is the light of the world in that He not only does miracles, but that He corrects our vision so that we see the world correctly through His lens of truth. Now in this miracle, we're going to discover that Jesus is a sovereign Savior in two important ways. I want you to notice with me, number one, He is the Lord over man's brokenness. The Lord over man's brokenness. Read with me, starting in verse 1, chapter 9. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It is not that this man sinned or that his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, because night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So when the disciples saw this pitiful blind man, they looked at him through the eyes of their religious worldview. And they saw him as an example of God's judgment. You see, according to their warped ideas of sin and suffering, they concluded that if somebody was born blind, that must mean that God is punishing them or their parents for some sort of sin. It's almost akin to the idea of karma. But in this moment, the 
disciples sound a whole lot like Job's finger-pointing friends in the Old Testament, if you remember the book of Job, as Job loses his fitness and his finances and his family and uh, ultimately uh, everything is taken from Job. Uh, some counselors come to him, some so-called friends, and they are wrongly assuming in Job's story that there had to be a causal connection between Job's suffering and some kind of sin in his life that he had not yet confessed to. And the disciples are operating off of that same kind of understanding. How would we answer that? Well, generally we know that all disease, death, and disability is due to the fact that we live in a fallen, sin-cursed world. But we know that the problem of suffering is not so simple as pointing to somebody and say, you must be a big sinner, you're being punished by God for what's happening to you. We just live in a fallen world. It's a broken world where babies die and where tragedies strike and where there's blindness and paralysis and sickness. And by the way, it's no respecter of persons. Just because you're a believer and you walk with Christ, that doesn't mean you somehow get a free pass from suffering in this world. And so Jesus dispels this old-fashioned superstition. Really, what happens here is Jesus' answer to that age-old debate, why do bad things happen to good people? And generally, there's about three different approaches that people take when they come to answering that question. The first one uh, approach that people take when answering the problem of suffering is they say, well, it's obvious that there is no God at all. This was the position of C.S. Lewis he wrote about in Mere Christianity before he came to Christ as an atheist. He looked out on all the evil, suffering, and wickedness in the world and he concluded there must not be a God. And then one day it dawned on him, wait a second, if there is no God, there is no uh, arbiter between good and evil and therefore the whole question falls apart. Why, how can I call something evil if I know what good is, and if there's a difference between good and evil, then there must be a moral law, and if there's a moral law, there must be a moral law giver, and that actually led him to Christ. Another way that people try and answer this is they say, well, God is good, but he's not great. In other words, he's a loving God, he's a kind God, but he doesn't have all power, he's not truly sovereign. Another approach that people try and take in answering this question is they say, well, God is great, but he's not good. In other words, God is sovereign, but He's not an all-loving God or else He could stop the suffering and the death and the affliction that we find in this world. Jesus cuts through all of this and He offers to give light to man's darkened understanding of how God uses suffering. And the Bible holds both of these truths in tension. That God is sovereign and that God is good and He has a plan and a purpose for our pain. And yes, God uses those things for His glory. That's what Jesus points to. As He says here in verse 3, It's not that this man sinned or his parents, but watch this, that the works of God might be displayed in him. Many of you know the name Johnny Erickson Tata. She's a lady who is a great witness for God and His sovereignty and how God uses suffering. She had a diving accident at a young age and for the last 40 to 50 some years uh, she has been paralyzed in a wheelchair. But she has this saying that I, she often repeats 
God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. What does she mean by that? What she means is that God obviously hates evil, suffering, and tragedy, but he allows those things to afflict us, and it is through adversity that he accomplishes that which he loves the most, and that is transforming people into the image of Christ. And what Jesus' comment here about this man teaches us is that he was selected to suffer, just as Job was in the Old Testament. God permitted his pain because God had a higher purpose for it. The Lord is going to use this man's blindness as a way to demonstrate not just his sovereignty, but to give you and I an illustration of salvation, of how God brings sight to blind eyes. And herein is an important lesson to us about God's sovereignty and our suffering. We often want to focus on suffering as something done to us. God, why did you do this to me? Why did you have this happen to me? But God uses suffering to do something through us. Not to us, but through us. There's a great difference. God can get glory through a miraculous healing. And we pray for that. And we ask God for that. And when God comes through and He delivers you from cancer and He heals your sickness and He restores you back to fullness of health, we raise our hands in praise and say, God, it wasn't the doctors, it wasn't the medicine, it wasn't the cleverness of man. It was you. You are the great physician. We pray and we praise God in that way. But do you know this too? And this is what the prosperity preachers won't tell you. That God also gets glory through a suffering saint who says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Bless be the name of the Lord. God gets glory from a miraculous healing just as He does through suffering. You say, how is that? This is a mystery. Well, let me give you one example. Actually, two from history. How about Fanny Crosby? You know, she's probably the most prolific hymn writer of all time. Her biographers say that in her prime, she was writing as many as seven hymns a day. She wrote over 8,000 in her lifetime. But what you may not know about Fanny Crosby is that she lost her eyesight as a baby and spent her entire life blind. As an infant, her parents took her to a country doctor for treatment on an infection in her eye, and the quack doctor applied a homemade ointment to her eyes that ended up blinding her. In 1906, Fanny Crosby wrote her autobiography, and she shared thoughts on her suffering. Here's what she wrote. It seems, she said, intended by the blessed providence of God that I should be blind in all my life. And listen to this stunning words. I thank Him for the dispensation. Good gracious. I thank God that He made me blind. She went on as far to state that if she were offered a cure for blindness, she would not take it. Here's what she said. She said, quote, I could not have written thousands of hymns if I had been hindered by the distraction of seeing all the beautiful objects that would have been presented to my notice. Amazing that this woman had that kind of faith to see God's suffering in her life as a gift. And because of that, she was able to bless the church with songs that we still sing today and still bring faith and hope and peace to the lives of millions of believers. Only God could use suffering in that way. How about Nick Vujicic? He's another example of how God gets glory through suffering. 
Nick was born without arms or legs. And when he became a teenager, he got so depressed over his handicap that he became suicidal. He thought his life had no point, had no reason. Why would God let a big mistake like me with no arms and no legs live? And then one day, he opened the Bible. And do you know what passage he started reading? John chapter 9. It's the very passage that we're looking at today. And there he learned about the man born blind. And Nick realized that just as God had a purpose for the blindness in this man's life, that God must also have a purpose for him to be born with no arms and no legs. He ended up giving his life to Christ. And today he has a family, he's an author, and he has a global ministry. Listen to what he wrote in his book. He said, quote, I realize that God wants to turn my struggles into something that would glorify Him and bless others. Through God's grace, listen, he said, I get to show people all over the world that Jesus loves them, and through His grace, nothing is impossible, even life without limbs. He said, God reveals His glory in me just the way that I am, and even more wonderful, listen to this, because of my body, God can use me in ways that others can't be used. Do you see the connection here? These people are recognizing through Christ that their suffering was actually a great gift. It was actually the platform that God gave them by which they would then preach the gospel to others. This blind man didn't know it. But God had chosen from his mother's womb not just to be a candidate for suffering, but a candidate for a miracle. And the Lord timed it perfectly so that this blind beggar would be in the exact spot on the day that Jesus would come passing by. And friend, what we need to understand is that when it comes to suffering, God is too loving to be unkind. He's too wise to make a mistake. And when we cannot trace His hand, we can trust His heart. And by the way, only Jesus is big enough to provide answers to the problem of suffering. There's no other one who can answer that problem of suffering because Jesus willingly entered into it when he went to the cross to die for your sins and mine. It's through the suffering of the Son of God that salvation is provided. The worst, most terrible event in history ends up becoming the greatest blessing and the way of salvation to you and me. Only God can do that. So we see that Jesus is not only the Lord over man's brokenness, That God is sovereign here, even in the suffering of this blind man, and Jesus is going to prove that. But he's also, number two, the light for man's blindness. He's the light for man's blindness. Now, we read in verse 5 a few minutes ago that Jesus claimed there to be the light of the world. Not only is he claiming to be God in the flesh, but he's going to prove that by opening this man's eyes. And he's also going to diagnose mankind's greatest spiritual problem. And that is this. That man is blind to the truth, oftentimes willingly. We don't want to see things that are uncomfortable, things that expose us, things that show us who we really are. We're willingly blind. Just as the Pharisees we're going to see are willingly blind. By the way, according to the Bible... One side effect of man's sinful condition is that we are spiritual blind to our depravity, we're slow to believe, and we refuse to step into the light. We're blinded by so many things. Think about who you were and how you thought before you came to Christ. Blinded by pride. Blinded by religion. Blinded by the 
treasures of this world, blinded by Satan's lies. Paul explains this in 2 Corinthians 4. 4. Listen to what he said there. The God of this world, he's speaking of Satan there, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So we wonder why sinners act the way that they do. We wonder why evil prospers. We wonder why some of our politicians make the decisions that they do. Why it seems that nobody has any sense, but you have to recognize if you're lost and undone without Christ, you are blind to the truth. You're fumbling around in the darkness. You don't know up from down, left from right. You don't know right from wrong. That's where we are in our world. The way that Jesus delivers this man from the darkness, though, is one of the most unique healings in the Gospels. And as I said it this week, I noticed four qualities of this miracle that directly apply to our need today. Notice with me. First off, there was an intervening Messiah. Did you notice what verse 1 said? As he passed by, watch this, he saw a blind man from birth. Jesus saw this man when he couldn't see him. This man couldn't see Jesus, but Jesus could see him. And when everybody else ignored him, and when everybody else saw little value in the life of this man, Jesus knew him. He knew he would be there. He knew the story. He knew the reason why he was suffering, and he had a solution for it. Friend, I want to tell you today, you and I are not invisible to God. We're not overlooked. We may feel like a nameless beggar in a cold, uncaring world, but this instance assures us that Jesus knows us. He knows our story. He knows our problems and the reasons why we have suffered in life. He knows all about us. He spots us in our situation on the side of the road. He takes the initiative. (laughs) Jesus saw him and Jesus went after him. He seeks after the sinner because, friend, in our blinded condition, we could never get up and come to him, but he came to us. By the way, this is the third example in the Gospel of John of the seeking Savior. Jesus first diverted his travel plans to go to Samaria. Remember that? I must needs go through Samaria. Why? Because there was a divine appointment for a woman at the well in John chapter 4. He sought her out. Then he sought out the worst case paralytic at the pool of Bethesda who had been laying there for 38 years. And now he goes after this man born blind. Are you beginning to get the picture now that Jesus intentionally goes after the most broken, the most hopeless, the most helpless? Jesus goes after the worst case scenario so that when they're healed, when they get up and walk, when they have eyes to see, there's no denying who the source of the deliverance is coming from. It's got to be the hand of God. And some of you today have got that same testimony. Praise God. Uh, You were blind. You were broke. Uh, There was no hope, no answer for you. If God didn't come and and rescue you, you would have split hell wide open. But I'm thankful for a God today, an intervening Messiah, who saw you in your plight, saw you in your brokenness, and made a beeline to pull you out of the situation that you were in. How blind were you when Christ came to you? How messed up was your vision? The way that you thought, the way that you looked at things, what was important in your life, the things that you valued, those things that were 
held most importance to you. How blind were you when Jesus came and sought you out? And then when he saved you, you didn't realize how dark your world was until he flipped on the light. Amen? Can you sing like John Newton did? Are you that rich? I once was blind, <laughs> but now I see. Amen? By the way, do you know that God is still doing this today? God is still going after the most hopeless, helpless, broken, blind people. The people that we think are the farthest from God. God has a heart for them. I was reading a book this week by Tom Doyle. He's a leading expert in missions. Here's what he reports. Muslims are converting to Christ by the droves to the tune of more Muslims coming to Christ in the past two decades than in the previous 1,400 years combined. You won't hear that on the 6 o'clock news or on social media. But Doyle described a phenomenon in his book of a person after person seeing the same image. Jesus in a white robe telling them he loves them, that he died for them, urging them to follow him. This is happening, Mr. Doyle said, in Syria, Iran, and Iraq. And what it is, is it's Christ appearing to these people in dreams and visions, casting off the scales of Islam and the Muslim religion and helping them to see that he's more than a prophet. He's the Son of God. He says it's happened so many times in Egypt that mission groups are taking out internet ads on, and billboards saying, have you seen the man in a white robe in your dreams? He has a message for you. And then they have a number. Call the number. <laughs> Amen? You talk about God's heart to reach the lost and the blind in this world. Doyle explains, he says, that 50% of the Muslim world, listen to this, cannot read. 86% don't know a Christian. But you know what? Jesus goes to them directly. That's my God. Amen? Are you praying for somebody today that's a hopeless case? Somebody that's so blinded by drugs or blinded by this world or blinded by the problems of sin? Hey, don't stop. Jesus will come to them directly. If you can't get to a mama, if you can't reach them daddy, hey, lift them up to the most high God. The Holy Spirit can get to them when you and I can't. Amen? An intervening Messiah. Then also look at this. Uh, I love this, verse 6. An irritating mud. An irritating mud. Look what verse 6 says. Having said these things, he, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. Now imagine going to your next eye doctor appointment. And they bring a bucket of dirt. And they spit in it, and they rub it on your eyes, and they say, all right, now look at that chart. Can you read the bottom line? <laughs> You'd never go back. You'd say, this doctor's a quack. But think about this. As calmly as a painter spackles a hole in the wall, Jesus straps and streaks mud across the face of this blind man. What an unusual way to minister to this man. Now, you're asking the question, that I asked too in my study this week, and that is, why does Jesus use such an unusual technique? I mean, he's God. He could have spoken the word. He could have snapped his fingers, and it all would have been healed in that moment. Well, 
God's always got a reason for doing what He does, even if we don't understand it. Amen? Now, we could venture several reasons why Jesus uses this irritating mud. The early church fathers saw something in this as a parallel in the miracle to the creation narrative in Genesis. Remember Genesis 1? Just as God formed Adam from the earth, now Jesus formed new eyes for this blind man from the dirt. Just as God said, let there be light. In Genesis 1, Jesus called this man from darkness into light for the first time. So there's that. But as we read this, our first thought is, this is gross. <laughs> I mean, if we were in charge of the miracle, we would do something more spectacular. I mean, couldn't there be like sparkles and rainbows? Or couldn't there be something more pleasant like a covey of doves? Or why, why the mud, Jesus? Well, here's the conclusion that I believe that God gave me this week. You know, God uses less than pleasant things to often precede the miracle in our life, doesn't he? Mud would have been irritating. Mud on the, in, in the face and in the eyes would have made things worse before they got better, right? And yet sometimes, listen to me, God has to create a mud moment in our lives to get our attention. What, what, do you mean, what do you mean, preacher? Sometimes it's death. Sometimes it's disease, it's divorce, it's disaster, it's death. And the mud in the eyes, life can become a muddy mess before we begin to see clearly. Sometimes when God is reaching the most hardened cases or the most hopeless cases, He puts mud in the eye as a way to lead them to salvation. And it's mud in the eye that drives us to Siloam's water. By the way, do you know that the gospel message can be mud in the eye to the sinner? Now, I didn't say that. Paul said that. Paul says that the gospel is foolishness to them who are perishing. You preach the undiluted truth of God's word. You just simply open the book and call people to Christ. Tell them they're sinners. That God is a God of justice and, and God is a, jo a God of mercy and grace. And you know what? The world will label you as a hater. A bigot, closed-minded. Why? Because the gospel is offensive. It's an offensive message to tell people they're lost uh, in sin and that they're hell-bound. And that if they don't make a decision, they're going to be judged one day for their choices. Some people view the gospel as inefficient as offensive, as harmful. And the world thinks the gospel is like mud in the eye. See, this is easy to prove. Because before some of you got saved, you went to a church. And a preacher got up and he preached long and hard. And he talked about the sin in your life. And you were sitting there fuming. You were mad. You said, how does this preacher know what's going on in my life? How is he reading my mail? And you got up and you left church Mad and angry. You know why? Because it was mud in your eye. But it was the mud in your eye that led you to salvation. Amen. And hey, we saw a little bit of mud in the eye this past weekend, didn't we? Mud, the, the, the gospel is mud in the eye of a godless culture who hates Christ and who hates the sanctity of life and who hates what is precious and holy in the sight of God. Hey, you tell a lost and dying culture, hey, there's not... Uh, an infinity number of uh, sexes there's only two 
you tell a world that uh, there's not many ways to God, there's only one way, and His name is through Jesus. You tell a culture, hey, it's murder to kill an unborn baby in the womb of the mother. And you know what? That's like taking a favorite toy away from a toddler. You're going to see a tantrum. You're going to see some kicking and screaming. Why? Because it's mud in the eye of a lost world. It's not popular. They don't want it. They don't want to see. They can't see. But sometimes in order to drive us to the water, God's got to use an unusual method. Why? Because the things that could work won't work because we're so blind. Now we know that this miracle irritated the Pharisees. Because look what it said in verse 14. It's not on the screen but in your Bible. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened eyes. Jesus intentionally did this miracle on the Sabbath And in the eyes of the Pharisee, he was doing work. He was breaking the law that they had invented. He created mud. That was work. He uh, uh, healed on the Sabbath. That was work, according to them. Jesus did this intentionally to stir up the religious crowd. Why? Because they needed to see that although they had eyes, they were blind. And so it's irritating not only to the blind man, but it's irritating also to these Pharisees. And notice... Jesus did what only he could do. Religion couldn't save this man. Church attendance can't save you. Baptism or giving or good works can't save you. It can't remove the scales. Only Jesus can bring sight to blinded eyes. Well, there was an irritating mud. But then also notice this, verse 7, an inconvenient mandate. Look what verse 7 says. And said to them, watch this, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Look at that command. Go wash in the pool. Not only was Jesus' method irritating, but his way of doing it was inconvenient. Jesus' instructions were very explicit. Go to this particular pool, the pool of Siloam, and wash there. Jesus didn't say, go and wash in the nearest body of water that you can find. Uh, He did not say, go to a pool of your choosing. Why is he doing this? This is a test of this man's faith. Will he trust in just the word of Christ alone? And what's interesting is, friend, if you study the geography of Jerusalem, if you notice where Jesus is at the temple and the pool of Siloam where it was in that day, It was all the way across the city. It was a long walk to the pool of Siloam. This was inconvenient. This was out of the way. Did you know that to get to the pool, this man would have had to navigate through busy streets. He probably would have had to ask for directions. He probably would have had to get help. And when he arrived at the pool of Siloam, archaeologists tell us that there were 34 rough-hewn stones and steps that he would have to go down in order to get to the water to wash. This was inconvenient in almost every way. And you ask yourself, why the long journey? Because this is about faith. This is about obedience. And friend, listen to me. It didn't make sense to the blind man. And sometimes God is going to ask you to do something by faith. And it won't make sense to you. And friend, here's the point. You don't have to understand fully to obey completely And notice this too, obedience to God's commands 
are oftentimes inconvenient. Am I preaching the truth or not? They're often counterintuitive and they require trust. But you know what? That's the difference between walking by faith and walking by sight. The Bible says this. The Bible says forgive even when the one thing you want the most is revenge. That's faith. It doesn't add up. The Lord tells you, hey, you need to end that relationship and you're scared of being alone. Are you going to trust Him? The Lord asks you, you need to give more. You need to give sacrificially. And the simple math tells you as you look at your budget, God, there's no way. Are you going to trust Him? The Spirit guides you to move, but you say, Lord, I'm comfortable where I'm at. You see, this was all about faith. An inconvenient mandate. And when it comes to obedience, listen to me. Today is God's word. Tomorrow is Satan's word. And don't let obedience die in the valley of decision. Because between today and tomorrow, Satan's going to try and convince you, oh, put it off another day. There's an easier way. You don't have to do it. You'd be so odd, so backwards from the culture. That preacher doesn't know what he's talking about. God doesn't have your best interest in mind. He'll sow so many lies into your mind. He'll try and get you. To disobey. An inconvenient mandate. And then look at this as we end. An illuminating miracle. Verse 7 says, He went, washed, and came back seeing. And the neighbors and those who had seen him begging before were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And someone said, It is he. And others said, No, but he is like him. They couldn't even believe it, right? Verse 10 He kept saying, I am the man. And so they said to him, then how are your eyes open? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And that, friend, is the illuminating miracle. Here's what I love about this blind man. He knows very little about Jesus and yet he isn't afraid to tell what he does know. (laughs) This is proof, friend. Hey, you don't have to know everything about the gospel and the Bible in order to share Christ. He just began to share his story. Hey, I I don't really know a whole lot about this man. All I caught was that his name was Jesus. And I can tell you, I once was blind, but now I see. I can't explain what he's done, and yet I can't deny it either. Now, the Pharisees in this story, they had all the proof that they need to believe that Jesus was God. I mean, they've seen undeniable miracle after miracle. And yet, in the face of all that, they chose not to believe. They were so focused on the unexplainable that they ignored the undeniable. It wasn't because they couldn't believe. It was because they didn't want to believe. And that's true blindness, friend. When you can hear the truth, know the truth, see the truth, and yet close your heart off to it and say, Nope. That's true blindness. And friend, that's where we find ourselves when we hear the gospel over and over and over again and we close ourselves off to it and we don't respond to Christ's call. That's blindness. When we refuse to step into the light and admit our need for a Savior. And that's the whole irony of the passage is that the formerly blind man sees and the religious crowd, they're the ones who are really blind. And yet, the great thing about this passage, it says... 
He took a splash in that pool and he walked away seen. Friend, Jesus changes everything, doesn't he? Some of you can identify exactly with this blind man because you were like him. You were groping around in the darkness for meaning and purpose and direction in your life. And then Jesus steps in. He gives you new eyes to see the world in a way like you've never seen it. He takes the scales of sin off. And finally you can see things new and fresh. Everything is brighter. Everything is clear. Suddenly I've got Jesus in my life and everything's hopeful. I'm not a pessimist. I don't have to be down. I'm not addicted. I'm not living in the darkness anymore. I've got eyes to see. Because Jesus came by. And he did something that nobody else could do. And today I've got hope. Today I've got peace. And today I've got a story to tell folk who will listen. Hey, I don't have all the answers. I can't explain all the suffering in your life. Or why God allowed this or that into your life. But I can tell you he's a good God. He's a powerful God. He's a a blind breaking God and he can break through. He's still the light of the world. And he still offers anybody who will come to him. I can fix and give you 2020 vision. Remember Marilyn Ford? What happened to her is also undeniable. She's at her wit's end. She knelt beside her bed with her husband. It was just after midnight on August the 26th, 1972. It was her husband Acey's 33rd birthday. Listen to what God did. While they're praying at the bedside, God miraculously restored her sight. When Marilyn said amen, she opened her eyes and amazingly could see. She yelled at the top of her lungs, Acey, I can see you. And then she said, and you need to shave. (laughs) He brought her the newspaper. He held it up to her face. He said, can you read this headline? She read it perfectly. She said, I can even read this small print. Amen. They jumped. They shouted. They cried. They hollered. They yelled so loud they woke the baby up. And they spent the rest of that night calling parents and church friends, rejoicing in the news. And Marilyn went back to the optometrist. The doctor was confused. Praise God. He said, I don't understand it. Your eye exam just came back 2020. Your eyes look exactly the way they did before. In fact, he said, a portion of your eyes look like a mirror and that the silver had been scraped off before. But there is no medical explanation today for why you should have sight. You, ma'am, are a miracle. It's pretty good when God can baffle the doctors. Amen? Since her healing, Marilyn Ford wrote a book. She traveled all over the United States telling people about her healing and her story. And her testimony is that verse from Amazing Grace. I once was blind, but now I see. By the way, did you know this? The Old Testament contains no stories of the blind being healed. The Gospels contain four. And every one of them is done by Jesus. And it's as if the Bible is teaching us that Jesus alone reserves the miracle of sight for himself. You see, friend, Jesus doesn't just make sense. 
He brings sense to our lives. C.S. Lewis said it like this. He said, quote, I believe in Christ as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. That's what Jesus means when he says, I am the light of the world. In the world says seeing is believing, but in Christianity it's the opposite. Believing is seeing. And only Christ can give us new eyes to see. And when he does that, he defines all of reality for us.